On June 22nd, 1958, a handful of Little League players stumbled upon a gruesome scene near the Arroyo High School athletic field outside of Los Angeles, California, the body of a bloodied woman. Along with the sash cord, one of her stockings was pulled off and tied loosely around her neck. She had dried blood on her lips and nose and bruises on her neck. She was lying on her back and her lower half was covered with her coat. When law enforcement arrived and removed the coat, they found drag marks on her hips, indicating that she may have been dragged to that location from somewhere else. They also noticed that a string of pearls had been broken, maybe in a struggle, and 47 loose pearls lay scattered around her. The victim had no purse, wallet, or identification nearby, so police put out a bulletin on the radio with the description of her and what she had been wearing. It would be her neighbor, Mrs. Krasicki, who heard the bulletin and ultimately identified her at the county morgue. Her name was Geneva Alroy, a nurse at the Packard Bell Electronics plant and a 43-year-old divorcee whose 10-year-old son was due home from his dad's that afternoon. I'm your host, Catherine, and this is Murder and Mediumship. You know what time of the year it is? Holiday season! It's Among Us, and gift certificates are up and available on CatherineAnnIntuitive.com. Let's sit down and see how 2023 is looking for you and how you can better navigate your current situation in order to reach your ideal situation. My private readings can be with the sole intention of connecting to a loved one on the other side, or they can be for the purpose of guidance through a difficult time in life or just for gaining clarity altogether. Thank you to all of you who have connected with me and for trusting me with your energy. The next Psychic Medium Practice Circle is tonight, Monday, November 21st at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you'd like to be a part of that, then please head on over to Patreon and join the tier Intuitively Aligned, either basic or premium, and join us for some practice. These circles are always full of love. They are full of light. They are very gently practice in. We're not, um, it's a really open, safe space to practice. Okay. So there's no judgment. There's nothing like that. It's a good place to come and really start building your confidence in your practice. Okay. Let's get into what happened with Geneva, also known as Jean Elroy, and this unsolved case that has a lot of people like her son, true crime author, James Elroy, scratching his head all of these years later. Just the same as every Sunday, James, whose name was actually Lee at the time, but later changed it to James, and we'll call him James in this episode, his father Armand put him into a taxi to send him back home to his mother's house. The two of them weren't on speaking terms at the time, and this routine was tried and true for the three of them. I can't imagine doing that now in 2022, putting my 10-year-old son into a taxi or an Uber to have them dropped off, but you know, it was the 1950s. Things were absolutely different then. This time, though, when James arrived home, he found a slew of police officers and crime scene tape around his home. Mrs. Krasicki identified him as Jean's son, and the police informed him that his mother was dead. And if you listen to any interviews with James, he'll talk about how a lot of people thought that like he didn't understand or that he was calloused, but he didn't have the best relationship with his mom and had, had just told her not too long before that he wanted to live with his dad. He didn't like being there with her. As police canvassed the area, it seemed that no one had seen or heard anything suspicious at all early that morning or the evening before. 
Mrs. Krzyzewski told police that she had witnessed Jean leaving in her vehicle early in the evening. According to her, though, that sweet neighbor, Jean was a fine lady who didn't drink or date men, which it turns out is exactly the complete opposite of how Miss Jean Elroy chose to spend her time. She did drink, and a lot, and she entertained a lot of men, so many so that her son was used to calling these strange men uncle when they would be in, in their home. Her own son later described her as an alcoholic who would send him to church the one Sunday a month that she had him while she'd stay home and sleep off and nurse a hangover. Using a photo provided by Krasicki, detectives headed to local bars to see if they could piece together Jean's last evening. It didn't take them long to find her car parked behind the Desert Inn. Bar is a bar and restaurant, not just like a dive bar. Employees verified that she had been there and had arrived alone around 8 p.m. the night before, but was later joined by a man and a woman that they didn't recognize. The police called in a sketch artist to drop the man she had been seen with. He was described as, quote, swarthy, a dark-haired man with uh, darker skin, so he was either Caucasian or Mexican, around 40 years old, and he was around like 5'9 to 6 feet tall and on the thinner side. The woman seen with the two of them was a white woman sporting a blonde ponytail and couldn't have been any older than her late 20s. The sketch was circulated to all area newspapers and all police agencies in L.A. County. Unfortunately, the only witness who had been told the swarthy man's name had been too drunk to remember his name. And that witness, Michael Whitaker, did remember seeing the two of them leaving together around 10 o'clock at night or so. I don't know if we can really like hold the candle to that flame or what, because he was so intoxicated he couldn't remember the swarthy man's name. However, I forget names as soon as you tell them to me, drunk or not. So I don't really know if there's too much merit to that. Anyway, in the meantime, the autopsy report released to the police showed signs of recent intercourse, and they found a tampon shoved all the way to the back of her vaginal cavity. As an aside, I didn't know those existed in the 50s. Regardless, this is what led authorities to believe that intercourse was likely not consensual because she had a tampon in and it was pushed all the way up to the back. There was evidence that Miss Elroy had sustained several blows to the head, but had ultimately died of ligature asphyxiation. She was strangled, likely using the sash cord found around her neck. It was believed that the nylon was placed there around her neck, Um, postpartum. It wasn't placed there until after she was uh, dead. Her nails had blood under them and allegedly had fragments of beard hair under them as well. On June 25th, a car hop from Stan's drive-in came forward to police. Her name was LaVon Chambers, and she had waited on Jean and the Swarthy Man twice that evening, once late at night around 10 o'clock on Saturday, and then again around 2 a.m. that that early um, Sunday morning. LeVon told authorities that when Jean and the Swarthy Man were there the first time in his 55 or 56 dark green Oldsmobile, Jean looked absolutely beautiful, and she had actually won a contest for being such a beautiful redhead, and that's how she wound up in L.A. to begin with. It was about 10.20 at night, and she had clearly been drinking, but she was composed. She had ordered a grilled cheese. She was having fun. Swarthy Man had a cup of coffee. She was very chatty and excitable to LaVon while her company seemed kind of uninterested and maybe even bored with the conversation. When they returned home around, when they returned to the drive-in around 2 a.m., Jean looked disheveled and she was clearly intoxicated this time. LaVon expressed to authorities that it seemed like the two of them had some sort of relations as Jean's dress was unbuttoned up top. Her beautiful hair was a complete disaster, and one of her breasts was literally spilling out of her dress. 
Jean wasn't as bubbly or as excited as she had been before, and she even seemed sullen, as Levon described her. The swarthy man, however, ordered another cup of coffee while Jean had a bowl of chili. And they weren't there for very long, either, from what I understand. No one could seem to find the swarthy man, and no one else could provide any information about who she had been with. The blonde with the ponytail was nowhere to be found either. Other than the swarthy man, they really didn't have any suspects. She and her son's father, Armand, had been divorced for nearly as long as James had been alive, and she seemed to drink a lot and have a lot of men around. And I'm not trying to victim shame. It just sounds like as if the amount of people who could look good for it, it sounds like that was a like a good number of people, and none of them matched the description of who she had last been seen with. Her sister pointed the finger at Armand, Jean's ex, James's father. He was known to stalk her, to look into the bedroom window while she was having intercourse with other men. He threatened her, he abused her, he harassed her, but all in all, he was with their son James when she was murdered. He could not have done it. Armand told James and others that he felt she was likely invited to a threesome and that with the swarthy man and perhaps the blonde with the ponytail, and that she kind of stuck up her nose at the idea of it and angered the wrong person, and that was that. That was the end of Jean. Nothing came up for quite a while, though. In 1970, two different women, this is 11 years later, two different women wrote to the police that they believed their ex-husbands maybe had something to do with Jean's murder. The first said that her ex worked at the same plant as Jean and that he was acting suspiciously in the weeks after her murder. She said that she questioned him about where he was the evening of the 21st of June, 1958, and that his response was to hit her. I mean, I'm not condoning violence against women, but maybe he hit her because she was accusing him of murder, not because he murdered someone. It's not really a good, uh, like a, a good compliment to your character if someone's willing to accuse you of murder. The second woman believed that her ex had a longstanding grudge against Jean for refusing to process a worker's compensation claim for him. Seems a little dramatic to kill someone over workers' comp. However, the guy clearly had anger issues as in 1968, he burned down a warehouse after his dining room table set was repossessed. That's intense. Neither of these women's stories ended up being any more than two angry divorcees fuming about their husbands and trying to connect them to an 11-year-old murder case. However, only seven months after Jean was found dead near a royal high school in El Monte, Another woman, Elspeth Bobby Long, was found in a nearly identical crime scene. Elspeth went by her middle name, Bobby, and she was found murdered just about four miles from El Monte, from where uh, Jean had been found, on January 23, 1959. Like Jean, Bobby Long was found beaten and strangled. Elroy had likely been strangled with the sash cord and the stocking was tied around her neck afterward, but Long was without a doubt, strangled using the nylon stocking, she, which evidently was common. It was, it was in like a, a, I don't know how to say that the right way, but it was a common way to strangle women. It was using their nylon stocking, probably because they all had them and wore them all the time. So she was dumped on a secluded road that led to a water pump station in La Puente and found by a man named Ray Blazingame. Now, Ray called local authorities from a gas station after finding her, and he was cleared pretty quickly, hung out to kind of see what was going on for a while, and police eventually told him he could go. When deputies arrived, they found her laid out face up and stretched out. Like Jean Elroy, her legs had been covered by her coat. Unlike Jean, though, her purse was found at the scene, propped up against a barbed wire fence just a few feet away. 
While the contents of her purse were pretty normal for what you would expect to be in there, deputies lucked out in that there was a bus stub left behind in her wallet, and fortunately, her ID was in there as well. It became clear very quickly that Bobby had an affinity for horses, and especially for the racetracks. Her coat had a horse and jockey pin on it, her wallet, her wallet covered in horses, and at her apartment, a number of articles about horse racing. They also found their next steps, a paycheck from Bill's Cafe, which meant that they had somewhere to go for more information on their victim. And they found a camera with six photos that had been taken on it, so they sent that off to have the film developed too. Now, the building manager at her apartment was able to point them to a neighbor who also worked at Bill's Cafe. She described Bobby as someone who knew lots of men, but didn't seem that her sexual appetite matched that of Elroy's. She thought that Bobby was currently seeing, quote, some rich guy. The owner of Bill's Cafe called her a a good waitress who loved horse racing and pointed deputies to another friend, Betty Nolan. Betty had seen Bobby three days earlier at work on Tuesday and had been invited to go to the tracks with her, but declined. She was able to give police descriptions of a few men she knew were in Bobby's life, but didn't know anything of a rich guy. Betty pointed them to a guy who worked at a creamery who was later found and cleared because he had been working that evening and a guy named Roger. Roger turned out to be a married man who brought himself to the station once he had seen her in the papers. He, of course, met Bobby at the tracks and had actually just been by her apartment that previous Wednesday morning, only a few days earlier. He had wanted to bring her to San Diego to, quote, pale around with while he was on a trip with his wife. Roger's great, yeah? Roger, however, wasn't in town when she was murdered. That Wednesday morning, one of the cooks from Bill's Cafe also showed up to drop off her paycheck for her, but he didn't really have any more information or know of the men that Betty talked about either. The autopsy report from the coroner's office verified that she had indeed died of acute asphyxiation, though her skull had also been fractured in four places, and one of them was crescent-shaped, leading police to wonder if maybe the weapon used had been a crescent wrench. Like Jean Elroy, she had food in her stomach when she was killed. Mexican food, beans, rice, cornmeal. Because her external genitals were not bruised at all, they assumed that the semen they'd found in her vaginal cavity was from consensual sex. She had zero alcohol in her body at the time of her death. Her blood alcohol alcohol content was literally 0%. And deputies had no shortage of people to talk to, as they had her address book from her purse, which they didn't have the good fortune of having from Jean Elroy because her purse was missing. They were consistently directed from one person to another who knew Bobby to another person who knew Bobby, but none of which knew her to know the same men, and none of them really knew very much about her family or her personal life. They went to a lot of places and talked to a lot of people, but they didn't seem to be really getting anywhere. Most of them could agree that Bobby loved the races, and it seemed that she had a bit of a gambling problem. No one knew who the rich guy was, who the creamery guy was, who dropped her off at work in a blue and white turquoise car or who she had been with the evening before she died. Police spoke to someone at the bus station who said that the stub they had was for her return trip back to El Monte, but she clearly hadn't used it. This didn't come as a surprise to many, as Bobby evidently had a knack for catching rides home from strangers she met at the tracks. Her ticket had been purchased on January 22nd, that Thursday before she left for the tracks. As they continued to canvass the area bars and cafes, they found that Bobby was not the demure and ladylike woman that she was painted out to be by others, but was often described as rude and outspoken. She would shove her way to the front of line, she would yell at people, and she demanded that she be served first and best. 
Most believed she caught a ride home from some guy at the track, refused to sleep with him because she hated sex, and he likely killed her. In fact, police staked out the track for a couple of days throughout different times of the day to catch a good variety of people coming in and out, and witnesses who had seen her there said that they saw her kissing a blonde man with a large hooked nose. The camera found in her apartment had a few photos taken on it, and once the film was developed, they found her in front. One of the photos had her in front of a two-toned 56 Oldsmobile, which is around what the suspect from Elroy's case had been seen in with Jean Elroy the last evening she was seen alive. Tip after tip came in, but none of them seemed to pan out in anything of value. Lots of ple- lots of people were blowing in their neighbors, their ex-boyfriends, whoever. None of them came out to be anything of value though. Even the Oldsmobile turned out to belong to a woman who she used to live near to. And supposedly because of Bobby's love for money, she wanted to pose in front of it and did so without the woman's permission. Bobby loved money and she was always looking for men with money and willing to do nearly anything for money, though she usually didn't have much. She actually owed her bookie, of course, no one knew the bookie, $300. According to stories she had told friends of hers during World War II, she had met a sea captain who, quote, kept her. He sent her $250 a month for rent, food, clothing, and she was not above trading sex for money and charged, quote, a good bit for it too. Was it possible she had let someone have relations with her and then she demanded her payment and they became enraged and killed her? Maybe they didn't realize they were going to have to pay for it? I am not sure, but was Police were really working hard to get any information that they could to help progress the case. They called in sex fiends from Jean Elroy's case, as well as 22 newly registered sex offenders, and still they found nothing. On February 17, 1959, known rapist Eugene Thomas Fries was caught actively dragging a woman into an alley. Two deputies, deputies caught him doing this. They ID'd him for Bobby's murder, and he even took a polygraph, but the results were inconclusive, and they didn't have enough to keep him for further questioning on Bobby's murder. Was it possible? He had no murder charges in his past, but he certainly had rape charges going all the way back to 1951. Detectives had initially wondered whether or not Bobby could have been the blonde seen with Jean Elroy months earlier, but witnesses who had seen the blonde woman with Jean said that that blonde woman with the ponytail was in her late 20s, whereas uh, Bobby was much older than that. The two women were found just a few miles apart, both strangled, both beaten, and authorities believed that Elroy had likely had con- had been sexually assaulted, while Long, more than likely, according to authorities, had consensual sex. I don't believe it was consensual. I think that the lack of bruising, I don't think that's enough. And and this is my opinion, but you don't have to be violently assaulted in order for it to be a sexual assault. And they also said that because her underwear was still in place, that it couldn't have been rape. I think these presumptions are horrific, but neither of their killers were ever found. And there are theories out there that get a little outlandish. But my question for all of you listeners is this. Do you think the same person killed both women? I can see how authorities would think so. Logically, I would be drawn to say yes, that they were both killed by the same man. Intuitively, though, I don't feel like they were. And as far as I know, James Elroy doesn't believe that they were either. But head to my Instagram, catherine.ann.intuitive, click it in the show notes, and comment on the episode's reel and let me know. Do you think the same man murdered both women? Thank you for being here, and make sure to come back Thursday for another segment of Coffee and Conjurings.